Drift and Epilogue Media come together to make Talk the Talk, where we talk about everything with everyone, automotive. My name is Glenn, your host. Varun is on a break this week, but you can catch his previous episode with Augie F. Ogden Fernandez, one of the most prominent motor vloggers in our country. Um, it was a two-episode series, a lot of great nuggets there. Augie is an incredible guy. And if you want to get a little tidbits about motor vlogging, you should check out that episode. Talk the Talk is brought to you by Epilogue Media. You can listen to us online at www.epilogue.media, not but we are also available on all other podcast platforms. So that's Savan, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, and also now on India's very own Storyo. Now, today is a very special episode, guys. I am super excited for this. We are going to be talking to the great, the one and only Mr. Subrata Marmar, better known as Shumi. This is something that I have been looking forward to honestly for the last six months when I heard the news that Shumi is joining Power Drift. Round of applause for that to the one guy in the audience who's listening to us. Uh, <laughs> so for those of you uh, guys who don't know, obviously you know who Shumi is. He's one of the most prominent motoring journalists in our country. He's done so much. He has an illustrious career. We're going to get into all of these juicy details throughout this conversation. So put on your seatbelt. <laughs> Anyways, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Shubrata, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Great. Shumi, so first question, how does it feel to move from Mumbai to Pune? Uh, I'm kind of still getting used to it because uh, I actually haven't seen Pune as a city yet. I've just seen Power Drift as a workplace so far. Yeah. So I've basically been shuttling from the place I'm staying at back to office and out. Uh, so give me six months, maybe I'll answer that question better. But uh, in terms of temperament and pace, I'm a very Mumbai person. Yeah. And I've been warned that Pune is a little too slow for me. So we'll figure that part out. But uh, so far, so good. So far, so good. So Shumi, of course, I'm sure everybody in the audience is dying to know why Power Drift. But we'll get to that in, in, in a bit. Uh, first thing I'd like to know is, especially for the audience who might not know who Shumi is, because we have a lot of younger folks as well who've maybe been living under a rock. If you can just introduce yourself to us, tell us who you are, what gets you going. Uh, so my name is Shumi and uh, my life has revolved around motorcycles for almost as long as I can remember. Uh, as a kid, I think it started with somebody in my school getting their first bike and that was a Hero Honda Sleek. You remember the Sleek with the long tail? Uh, the ad with the guitar in it. Yes. What's life without maybe. a little passion? What, what year was this? Uh, I was in class 11 and okay. uh, this dude was a businessman's son. And I can't tell you how many nights I was up thinking he has a bike. I don't have a bike. I need a bike. And my parents were absolutely and totally opposed to the idea of me getting a motorcycle. And I think that sort of imprinted itself so deeply into my system uh, that once I started working, all I wanted to spend money on was motorcycles. And then I sort of figured that this was a bad idea because I would never have any money. I would always have lots of motorcycles. And that was not really a career. So this was in your 11th grade. So you were about yeah, so, 16. Yeah, so 16, I turned 18, then. got a job, yeah. uh, sneaked my first motorcycle. Well, I got a scooter almost out of sheer dint of effort because my parents said nothing doing scooters first. Uh, did a summer job, collected money. Could so afford. until then, you'd never ridden a motorcycle before? Uh, so uh, <laughs> in class 8, we were in Gurgaon, which is my uh, mother's place. And uh, some uncle who lived next door sort of found me loitering around doing basically nothing. And he said, uh, come, we'll ride a bike. And I thought I was going to go sit pillion with him. And he had a blue KB100, I distinctly remember. Yeah. It was evening, it was already dark. And we went down some narrow gully somewhere with no people around. And he's like, okay, you ride it. And I was like, 
okay i remember not stalling the bike and i don't know how i didn't stall the bike but i That's remember awesome. not stalling it and then i went really really quick and at one point i remember him screaming in my ear saying you don't know where the brakes are you need to slow down and i was like i don't know where the brakes are how the hell do i do that but anyway we survived that and i think that left a deep impression that motorcycles and the feeling of riding was something that yeah. i wanted more of yeah. but uh, after that i didn't touch a motorcycle till i got my license once i got my license though it was a fun roller coaster i got a kinetic honda as my first bike nice uh, we went to buy some really tatty old thing because i had think at 5500 rupees from some summer training we conducted yeah. and uh, my father looked at it and he's like nothing doing here is a loan interest free paid back in 18 months and i don't think i ever did but uh, i bought a new scooter a year later i quietly upgraded to a kb125 which was my first motorcycle and from then on i've owned quite a few uh, i've been privileged enough to ride almost everything that's gotten launched in the mm. country I've had the special pleasure of riding almost everything that was out in the market at all because back in the day when grey market bikes were around I was getting to ride them as well. Exactly. So lots of motorcycles have been ridden and I'm happy to say there's lots more still left to do. Yeah. So how did you get your motoring fill back in the day because of course uh, how were you in touch with what was happening in the industry what was going on did you have magazines or posters on the wall uh, so i had a job at a place called nit gis limited we used to uh, sell market service uh, effectively mapping systems uh, intelligent mapping systems and uh, i would have 10 windows with motorcycles open and one window with work open and as soon as a certain amount of work was done you'd sort of alt tab and do other stuff so internet was a new thing back then but there was still already was a lot of 90s i'm guessing yeah mm -hmm. uh, early late 90s I late think. 90s yeah so there was already a lot of content available not i think at the quality level today or the kind of content we get yeah. today but there was stuff on the internet you could read yeah. and it wasn't always reviews i was reading i don't know people riding on the nurburgring and what for that felt yeah. like i was there was a group called master strategy group who used yeah. to have this humongous website full of riding tips yeah and i really fell in love with physics for the first time based on that website because oh. there was a article called the physics of a high side which explained yeah. what happens when you high side yeah. a motorcycle in terms of physics nice and for the first time you remember in school they say there's a ball rolling down a hill from this side and then another <laughs> ball rolling down and they meet where yeah. Yeah. and all of this doesn't make sense to you in school but Absolutely. when you put it in the context of motorcycles and motorcycles having high sides it certainly makes a lot of sense that, you know that that was exactly the same for me when it came to physics and math uh with with automotive it's when only when i really fell in love with cars and bikes yeah. and you you read the physics behind it you're like oh shit this makes so much sense this yeah. practical application yeah. although i failed my math miserably in high school and yeah. long story short but i was actually forced not to do math between 9th and 10th said you're so bad at it you will not graduate high school started to computers instead but that's a story for another day um but uh, when you talk about like when you were in school uh what exposure you said you you had you rode your neighbor's bike but did you ever follow racing no, back no, to darshan no. back in the day no, 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 but no. you knew you had this in ingrained passion for motorcycles yeah so. i i knew that that class 8 ride and this guy's motorcycle being visible every day while i was on a yeah atlas slr I knew that there was something there that I wanted to do but yeah. it wasn't crystallized into something that is as clear to me as it is today. Yeah. But I think what happened is that uh, there used to be a gentleman called Parag Trivedi. Mm -hmm. Parag used to run western classical music appreciation workshops. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, so and Parag was insane because he came to uh, my college which was School of Planning and Architecture in Delhi and uh, he conducted I think a 36 or a 48 hour workshop and that's what it was. He stood up and then he basically made us listen to pieces of music and oh, explain amazing. what happens and this sort of went on and we went for classes and we came back and he was still there and then we stayed the night with him in the auditorium and listened to him some more and then we went back to classes and came back and he was still there 
Wow. And so at the end, I was chatting with him and I was like, how the hell are you doing this for 48 hours at a row? And he said, if you find something that you love to do, then the energy to do it is sort of automatic. Mm. And that sort of stayed with me for a long time. And after two years in that software job, I basically wrote the editor of BS Motoring a letter saying that it doesn't make sense to me that I'm earning this money and spending it on a motorcycle. I would like to make motorcycles my living. And then that way I will have money to do other things. Yeah. Turns out I don't really do other things, but it was a good decision about uh, <laughs> 19 years ago. Yeah. And um, so you, your first job was in, in a software company. So what did yeah. you do? So it was a small outfit called CAD Studio in Saket. And they were uh, dealers for the GIS system nice. company that I eventually ended yeah. up working for. And my job uh, was, I think, part education, some amount of training, something. And... Uh, I think I was overqualified for the job. Like it was obvious to day, uh, no, perhaps not to me, but to everybody else, it was obvious that I was too fast uh, for that small space. But I was doing everything and my boss was a good man. Uh, on day, I think eight, I went up to him and I said, I need a salary certificate that says my salary is 6,000 bucks. Mm. And he's like, I am not giving you a raise on day eight. I said, I'm not asking you for a raise. I'm just asking you for a letter because I need to get a loan for the bike. Wow. So uh, <laughs> it turns out I was doing so well that a month later, he did actually raise my salary to 6,000 bucks from four and a half thousand bucks. But I did get my bike Big money on a then. completely false salary note. Right. which is how the kinetic was sold and the KB was acquired. Yeah. But a few months after that, it came to a point where I did something extraordinary and uh, the it doesn't matter what I did, but essentially the distributors called and said, you took the order away from us. Effectively, I got somebody to order at the dealer instead of the distributor because I was at the dealer. Huh. So they said, you need to come and work with us. That doubled my salary. So immediately there was one RD350 and then in short succession, another RD350. What? And my father would come home and he's like, there's a bike in your uh, parking space. I says, yeah, that's my new bike. And then he'd come back and now there's two bikes in your parking space. I say, yeah, those are my bikes. And they'd be like, that one looks bigger and faster. I said, it is bigger and faster. <laughs> but I think over time, the confidence grew because I wasn't yeah. really having incidents. I wasn't really falling off yeah. or having crashes. So at one point I had three motorcycles and I was about to buy a fourth. And at which point it was sort of obvious that uh, <laughs> I needed to find something to do with motorcycles. Because this was go broke all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. So you did your engineering, I'm guessing? or No, I'm a town planner by education. I did uh, undergraduate program. Yeah, no, town oh. planning. Okay. So I went to School of Planning and Architecture, which is considered India's best school for architecture and yeah. town planning. I did the bachelor's program in town planning, oh, four-year wow. program. Yeah. It's a great program, I think, yeah. because if you have to plan a town, you have to understand how humans live. Right. Something so India desperately needs everything. Nice. Okay. So I've studied socio sociology, economics, structural engineering, uh, designing houses, designing uh, layouts, designing regions. Yeah. Uh, and then you basically get a finger into practically every pie that defines how you live today. Mm. Yeah. So hi history of art, history of human settlements, everything. Mm. But that means when you come out into the job market, mm. you're not alien to anything, although you're not a specialist at anything. Yeah. So in my software job, what I was doing was I was selling mapping software to people who would use it. Exactly. And I would understand the use cases because I'd studied some part of what they do with it. Exactly. Yeah. So it was easy for us to talk to people who did remote sensing, for example, because yeah. we use remote sensing data for our projects. Yeah. It was easy for... We, <laughs> Once we took a demo that we created for a sewerage system and we spoke to a telephone company and said, hey, it's the same system. And in theory, it's just a network, right? Yeah. You just have to understand how the terminology changes and how the flow of, in that case, sewage, and in this case, uh, bits, yeah. uh, how they change. But it was fun and I was able to do this easily because town planning taught, taught you to think laterally, right? Nice. 
It was a great program. Uh, so when I came out, naturally the options are limited because at that point of time, town planning in India didn't really have any private. I was sector. just going to ask because at that period of time, I'm sure everybody was doing software jobs, looking to go to the US. And uh, town planning was a very backward profession in that yes. sense. It was only government jobs. It was yeah. only municipalities and urban yeah. planning commissions. There were very few private sector yeah. players. How did your folks deal with that decision? Oh, my folks are actually pretty calm about things. Okay. So my father's perspective always was you be happy and what job it is that you do is not really central to that nice so as long as you're happy so i remember him getting into a scuffle with a, another parent at a parent teacher meeting where yeah. this parent was like what's your son going to grow grow up and become engineer or doctor <laughs> and my father's like he's capable of figuring out what he needs to do what the uh, hell are you doing to your so daughter true, yeah. and it sort of became a thing which went to the principal's office but for parents not for yeah. us but uh, in that sense there was no pressure to really do a specific kind of engineering That's program yeah. or go to a specific college or achieve anything nice uh, my father would go to parent teacher meetings and say what's wrong with him being 13th in the class and my teacher that's would be amazing. like, but he could easily be first. So, so you're convinced. So, yeah. so then that's good enough for me, no? Yeah. If he's not lacking the knowledge, oh. what difference does it make whether he writes it in the exam that's or amazing. not? amazing. Yeah. When you come from there, this part of the job is relatively easy. So, and, and, and this is something I maintain, you know, parents with this mindset, because I also grew up with parents very similar. And I, it's a privilege yeah. to really have, um, you know, peop- folks who see you as that that pressure of the traditional mindset of yeah. this is what you need to achieve is is not there yeah. it gives you a lot of freedom to really make your own mistakes and explore so even today uh, on instagram i get questions from people who say how are your parents allowing you to ride motorcycles <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah uh, and i i know that some of these come from a place of extreme emotion and anguish yeah. because their parents just aren't allowing them but yeah. uh, honestly my answer to them is always the same it says look while you were living under their roof you were reporting to their structure of how living works. Correct. But once you're 18, you don't have to. Exactly. It's a matter of what your drivers are. Yeah. If my parents were to get in the way of my motorcycling, I would tell my parents to back off because now I can make my own decisions. Absolutely. And that would be based on the idea that my parents equipped me well enough to be able to make good decisions. Exactly. Yeah. And you have to go on faith there. Absolutely. In my case, I didn't have to do it. I'm yeah. lucky. But in your case, if you're 18 and your parents are getting in the way of your riding motorcycles, it's a matter of how badly you want it. Man, that's crazy. Cause I, when I was 18, my parents literally kicked me out of the house uh, mm-hmm. because they're like, okay, we've done enough. Now you figure it out. So no, your mistakes, your problem. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that's more of an Indian parenting, maybe another podcast of Indian mm-hmm. parenting. Uh, but we'll just uh, take a little pause here, guys. We'll take a quick little break. This is Talk the Talk podcast with the awesome Shumi. Lots of cool content coming your way. We will be back in just a sec. Hi, guys. Welcome to the SOS show. I'm Suchita, I'm a filmmaker and I deeply believe in the mental health cause. It's something that is close to my heart, something that I often see in my environment. I'm committed to the cause of mental health and I have made a lot of short documentaries with people suffering and transforming themselves uh, with various mental health issues. Uh, We are committed to creating an awakening and a transformation in mental health space. On the SOS show, we are going to have some real stories, some eclectic conversations and some definite transformations as we move forward together. We are going to break all the taboos around mental health, every single topic that has been swept under the carpet from mild to severe form of mental health will be discussed and dissected in the show. Mental health as we understand is not something that always needs to be complicated. It can be as simplistic as 
you know say not wanting to get out of bed or not wanting to face another day not wanting to take a bath not wanting to talk to anybody not wanting to reveal your emotions or you know perhaps having severe emotional swings that can be categorized as you know depression or mood swings uh, but it can have a deeper repercussion I look forward to interacting with the innovators, the fighters, the fearless ones, the game changers and more on the show. So stay tuned. This podcast is a joint effort of Epilog Media and Metaphysical Lab. So do connect to us on our social media handle Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can also DM us at Epilog Media. You can write to us at bourgeois at the rate epilog.media you can connect to me on my twitter handle metaphysical lab and my linkedin i look forward to connecting with you guys at a deeper level stay tuned all right folks here we are back after the quick break we're in conversation with shumi this is talk the talk so shumi we ended with talking about parents so you pretty much got into motorcycling one could say pretty late in life mm-hmm. and at a time where it wasn't very prominent you also mentioned that you had a couple of rds so at that stage uh, you were working in a corporate job what were you doing to improve your motorcycling skills was there any coaching that you did how did you really start improving your craft uh, so my parent my father used to laugh that uh, i would go to school and find something new to do literally every other week so one day i came home and i announced that i am going to learn table tennis for example and my parents were they were saying they sort of like it's our job to ensure that your opportunities are given to you so they would very dutifully go and buy me the racket and the ball and the mm. equipment you need to mm. play table tennis for example and then 3 days later they'd find me in the library ncert where we used to stay has a huge library and for some reason they had sections for example on table tennis and they would diy how do you learn to play table tennis books nice. in there so i would play for 3 days and then i would be in the library for 3 days reading 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 and it sort of became like my method so when i became serious about motorcycling all the windows that i opened on the other side were about how to ride better nice I remember going out on Sundays and practicing braking for example did oh. I did I brake well did I not brake well I don't know but <laughs> I know that I went out and practiced I nice. know that I would for years together do one emergency stop on every commute that I did and it was before ABS right it yeah. was important to know how to stop the motorcycle yeah. well because you couldn't go fast without it yeah. uh, in fact uh, my first RD350 came to me and the front brake shoes were missing entirely and they said wo bane nahi hai aap bike le jao sambhal ke chalana running kar rahe ho waise bhi Oh, and wow. by the time you finish the run in the brake shoes will come wow and i remember riding it for i think 5 days without a front brake at all this was like the dealer was saying that the brake shoes weren't this is it. my well, he became my friend so i know it was a genuine problem and yeah. they used to use some special leather to make the brake shoes because well you couldn't buy brake shoes for yeah. rd350s already and they were notorious for their braking issues they were notorious for braking issues and the leather was very cute because when it got wet then they were on off brakes <laughs> you touched it and it locked up everything and on, under normal circumstances they were all right but for the first 5 days of my first rd ever i had no front brakes at all That's so good. and i was not slow so i had to learn anticipation how to brake and the braking practice helped so i know that i was a conscientious thinking motorcyclist for a long time mm. in fact there used to be a motorcyclist motorcycle website called i think active bike or mm-hmm. active biker mm-hmm. and there was the whole point of that was the thinking motorcyclist and all the content was designed for people who were thinking about how to ride their motorcycles mm. better before there were like a thousand podcasts about it and a thousand videos for it sure. and the schools and all of that came much later so i know that i was already that person long before i discovered motorcycles where i would read i would employ and i would try to get myself better and i think i remain more or less that to my to, to today even now like i came in from goa just now 
uh, and there was a friend who was using my house as her office for the time being and she was trying to talk to me for the first 20 minutes and she was like are you that tired that you're zoned out and i had to explain say i'm not zoned out i'm reviewing what i did today on the motorcycle wow and i need to figure out where i made mistakes where i can improve yeah. what i did well and until i've finished that process i can't really come back and connect uh, to a person uh, in front of me so even now if i come into powerdrift in the morning i will usually stay outside the office for the first 10 minutes because that's me processing what i did on the motorcycle today how many things i got right things that i need to fix did i lose my concentration at some point it's only after that that i plug back into the world that that's amazing is this so this comes naturally to you so mm-hmm. you were doing this at a time where um there were no there wasn't a lot of information available youtube still wasn't like a big thing where you could get reviews from you know big uh, other folks um so do you think that this instinct was just inherently ingrained or is it something that you learned to hone over time or cuz this is the first time i'm ever talking to somebody who instinctively does this now we know that you know these are the things that you should do but uh, it seems like you're a very methodical person in your thinking process you're very logical yeah. and how did you arrive to those conclusions and follow up question to that do you think that being a good motorcyclist is it something that you're potentially born with which what seems to be the case with you or is it something that you can hone and develop over time mm. well I'll, let me answer the second one first yeah. i think everybody on this planet can in theory be a good motorcyclist some of us are natural and we just sort of get it and yeah. some of us have to work for it like i believe i'm not a naturally talented motorcyclist i believe i have to work for it yeah but i've spent 19 years doing it so obviously i am at a relatively good level but there are people who ride way better than me or very young who just sort of naturally get how it's done right at at my school where we teach we've had people uh, both students and other instructors who will just like change the way they ride over the course of a lap because somebody gave them a better idea i would take 2 months to implement the same idea you know mm. so i'm i don't think myself think of myself as a naturally talented motorcyclist but i've always been a methodical focused person and i think something my mother said when i was a kid sort of stayed with me and she said if it's worth doing it's worth doing well wow and yeah. it's something that i've always somehow tried to employ so the table tennis for example was not taken lightly when it was table tennis week it was hardcore table tennis week right everything i did was about table tennis for that week yeah yeah so if my uh, my coach at the school would say i wanted to bounce the ball off the uh, off the wall and back at the wall for like the whole day i would do that Nice. and everybody else would be like you're an idiot you're not supposed to do it for like 8 hours but if yeah. he said 8 hours i would do 8 hours yeah. Yeah. so i was that person but nice. i think that applies to everything i do perfect so if i'm going to do motorcycling and well it's my life now but if yeah. i'm going to do motorcycling i'm going to do it well nice. and i'm going to do it well with whatever resources i can get yeah. and that's why i say if you're serious about it anybody can be a good motorcyclist because the skills that we're using on the motorcycle are primarily mental they're not really physical yeah. it's about you figuring out that process yeah today you can get help right if yeah. you come to my school that's what level 1 is about yeah. it's to clean up what goes on in your yeah. brain when you're riding a motorcycle but even back in the day whenever i saw a motorcycle book that talked about how to ride better i would pick up that book nice and the one thing we were not very rich but the one rule that are at our house was you can always buy books right yeah. so the unlimited spending budgets were always we brought to <laughs> book fairs for example yeah. you know yeah. you, you it's not unlimited ice cream or pizza yeah. Yeah. it would be books yeah so at one point i think i still have almost all of them but there was like 80 90 books all about how to ride motorcycles better was my collection of things to go back to and read again and again and right. again so if you put in the effort you can be great at anything yeah okay very few of us are born with the natural instincts and talents that create maestros 
yeah but i don't know that if valentino rossi started riding at 19 or 21 he would be as good as he is today true. he would be very good true but he started at 4 and yeah. he had a long time to work absolutely. at absolutely yeah i started at 18 yeah. and i've had a long time to work at it as well yeah. so in the same breath i think anybody could pick up the skills required you, to be a great motorcyclist you know this is um, just for the uh, guys who are listening i got to say i'm just r- really i don't know fizzing at this moment because ashumi was talking about this he has this almost um obsessive glint in his eye and i really love it yeah, like yeah. i think that also gives an insight to his mentality where seems to me like borderline obsessive person yeah. but that's that's great and um, this is something that i've seen consistently across really successful people with whatever they do with their craft they have that look in his in that eyes and that's what i seen show me so it's amazing but the thing that you mentioned about you know starting up later in life this is the exact sa- exact same question i asked arvind kp as well because he started riding a motorcycle when he was 18 years old um started with an rx 135 was just um started on a dirt track and and all that stuff and i said you know you compete at the highest level of of uh, two wheel rallying and and you've completed the dakar which is no easy achievement uh, no easy achievement when you went f- abroad for the first time uh, when you went to spain or wherever and you're competing against guys in motocross who've been doing this since they're four what was going through your mind and he said yeah i started late but that's what other choice to have i can sit and mope about it yeah. and say oh I'm, i have a huge inherent disadvantage where people have over a decade of experience over yeah. me or i could just focus and do my best and yeah. the results obviously show so that's incredible what you said about yeah no and it's and, and he's absolutely spot on because i i feel like today a lot of kids uh think about stuff that they can't do yeah but they're not thinking enough about the stuff that they can do absolutely you know and it changes your life's outlook completely yeah okay uh if you were to go through life thinking about all the opportunities that you missed because of your lack of i don't know interest yeah. or you lo- because of an external factor excuses this would be a very sad life because you just it's like catalog of things that failed yeah right i would just rather not think about it like that yeah, yeah? so motorcycling at my level riding as much as we do i think i do about 50 to 70000 kilometers a year now nice you are at risk and you do get yeah. hurt and i i think uh, two years ago i got hurt twice and at no point did the thought occur to me saying oh this could be the end of the motorcycle career because that's not how it works yeah what will happen you break a leg mm-hmm. and let's say your leg is so broken that you can't ride a motorcycle mm-hmm. so there's one control on a motorcycle that needs to be relocated but you continue to ride a motorcycle <laughs> it's a it's it's a mindset yeah. right yeah. so when you look at the guys who are racing at moto gp who have broken collarbones and bent fingers yeah. and it doesn't slow them down at all Absolutely. it's it's in your head and you have to be strong enough to say i want to do this so badly that i will overcome this setback as well And I don't get that sense that the kids are being taught to be that kind of firm in the will to do stuff today. We're being mollycoddled a lot, especially I, I think guess so. kids in this. Yeah, I think I, maybe I think it's maybe like folks, um, not not to disclose their age, but from your generation, I'm forty three. <laughs> but but folks generally who were hammered down a lot with their parents being very strict. Now they want their kids to have opportunities and not be treated that way where they felt. maybe mistreated or whatever by the parents cuz you know in schools you would still get hit and slapped and i was part of that as well get caned in the butt a lot but maybe i think that's the reason why maybe one of the reasons why you think where folks don't want to be I, as I, i think we just we've we are at a stage where i think the parents have come through difficult times to get comfortable in life sure. and they don't want their kids to go through that process sure. and it has its pros obviously yeah. right but it also has its cons yeah. and if you're not earning your 
um, the benefits you're enjoying, then I think you don't value them so much. True. You know, uh, I know that I got to buy my own motorcycle because my father refused to let me buy it. But yeah. since then, I bought every motorcycle on my own. Yeah. As a journalist, there's always the opportunity to ask for a discount and I never have. Yeah. But it makes me value what I own that much more because That's I had awesome. to work hard for it. I know what all it took for me to have a Ducati today and an R6 today yeah. and a KTM and a plan for a fourth motorcycle. Yeah. I know how much effort is going into that. It may not be obvious to you and it's not your business. Yeah. But I know that I am working for that. Absolutely. And I know that the gratification is slow and it's not instant. But when it comes, it's yours. Yeah. And it's, it's a key difference between a parent who just sort of walks up to his son when he's 18 and says, here's a new Aprilia for you. <laughs> I mean, great. Is he going to value that motorcycle? Does Maybe he not. understand what he was, yeah. what he just purchased? Yeah. How many accidents have you heard where a 16, 18 year old kid was given a really fast motorcycle right. yeah. as a birthday gift? Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of really famous ones yeah. which I don't want to refer to specifically, but yeah. you know what I'm talking Absolutely. about. It's a, the guy doesn't value what he got. Yeah. If I had a son, I won't because I have motorcycles, but if I had a son <laughs> or a daughter, would I buy them a fast motorcycle because I could? Absolutely no, no, no way. Yeah. They would start small and they would show me that they can handle small before they got to something fast. That's amazing. Before we move on to your career, I just want to touch upon your folks because we've spoken a lot about them actually and definitely seems like they've had a great positive influence on your life. If you can tell us a little bit about your parents. Uh, so my dad is uh, uh, is a professor. My mother's also a professor. They both and in your Bengali, right? Uh, dad's Bengali, mom's Punjabi. Oh, they met in Baroda. That we is lived a feisty in Hopal. combination. We lived in Delhi, so it's kind of hard to place where we're from. Wow! It, 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 when you said Bengali Punjabi, it's like a Rubik's cube just solved itself. And I figured, shoot me. Out. No, no, no. So <laughs> that explains I, so much. I, 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 I believe I got the raw end of the deal because I could have been like built and had fair skin like a Punjabi guy with a Bengali brain. You know, like super intelligent and super good looking, yeah. but. You've got no. That. I think you <laughs> no. I look like a Bengali. I think like a Punjabi. <laughs> but no. The, the the jokes aside, we moved around a fair bit because okay. dad took jobs here and there and all of that. But uh, both dad and mum are very sorted, rational people. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, my uh, wife's side of the family they're very close knit, and hmm. I think I don't think my family is that close knit. But on the other side, uh, dad took me aside at, I think I was 14, day before I had to choose whether I would do Sanskrit or French or Hindi in school. And he's like, you're 14, effectively you're a functioning adult. Uh, we <laughs> will uh, give you your education and all of that for sure. But from today onwards, all the decisions you make will be yours. Nice. We can help you make decisions. We can give you more information to help you find a decision, but we will not make the decision. It also means if you make a bad one, the consequences will be yours to handle as well. We will support you as parents. But this is your baby. Yeah. So I said, okay. And I said, so French, Hindi or English? So my dad is like, no, no, you have to decide that. Right. And yeah. from that day forward, to his credit, he has never interfered with any of the decisions we've made. Nice. And that's where I come from. Yeah. Where my mother and my father both trusted me to make decisions yeah. and trusted me to be able to deal with the consequences of those decisions. Yeah. So when I bought the fast, the RD3, the first RD3, and they said, how fast is it? I said, 160 kilometers an hour fast. They knew that I was already taking helmet seriously. Yes. There was no riding gear, but I was already wearing a double-layered denim jacket on every single ride, including in the Delhi heat. Wow. I was out the day it hit 48 degrees. I was out on the motorcycle that day. I know I suffered, but I didn't take my jacket off. And they knew that I was able to process these things and make good decisions for myself. Right. And I don't think they've really worried about me being on a motorcycle ever since. But it comes as a push and pull. I Absolutely. was responsible and they allowed me to Absolutely. be. And, and, and I'm sure for parents, it's the hardest thing yeah. to not want to correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. But I think sometimes I see people who are my age, who are parents now, who try to protect their children a little yeah. bit too much. And I think that they shouldn't because yeah. it is their life's experience 
to experience those things including the negatives and yeah. be stronger for it absolutely i was um, uh, just on a side note again but i was uh, reading about this whole um, scandal that broke out in the us back the parents were essentially paying a lot of money to get their kids into college and there were like some celebrities involved there was a case where this one girl her parents there was this case where this one girl dropped out of college her parents took her out of college and she was at a i think at uh, ucla or something like that because she had a fear of ketchup <laughs> i'm not even kidding she was just scared of I ketchup i have a fear of ketchup too Yeah but they made sure that her entire diet since she was a kid would not revolve around ketchup they would call up like friends in advance if they were doing dinner parties and this is a real <laughs> thing i'm not even kidding ketchup so i'm like how would that person even be prepared for yeah. the realities and disappointment that life is inevitably no, going to throw you no it's true ketchup is a reality you have to deal with it at some point <laughs> that, that that's very cool and and now i'm guessing they're retired and Yeah so they I I think they're like me they can't really retire yeah. so they don't really have regular jobs anymore but they do consultancy work and all of that awesome. and as long as they're both functioning in terms of their brains they will both be okay that's awesome yeah. but I know them I I know that they will keep themselves busy they, do you have any siblings I have a sister uh, and like I said I it's not a very close family mm-hmm. so I'm not really in touch with her but <laughs> she's superb at her work she's a designer and she does uh, merchandising kind of work oh wow very and cool. uh, she has her own firm now she used nice. to be with uh, Viacom and Turner Entertainment and cartoon yeah. network and all of this stuff very cool yeah awesome okay so now moving on to the juicy bits of your career how did your career in automotive journalism start well like i like to say i, I wrote a man a letter so i basically <laughs> wrote bijoy uh, bijoy was the editor of bs yeah. motoring at yeah, that yeah. point of time and i wrote him a note um, and said that i want to do this and, and, and bijoy is now working at <laughs> mahindra bijoy is now the head of mahindra venture yeah. so So Bijoy said that okay, a colleague of his who was the resident editor in Bombay at that point of time, a gentleman called Hasib Drabu was in Delhi at that point, uh, and if I could go across and meet him, and it was a very short interview because Hasib basically said, "What do I do?" And I was explaining how successful I was at my IT job, and I was really good at it. And by letter, you mean handwritten letter? No, yeah, yeah, I wrote him on. Yeah, wow, I, this I, is. I posted incredible. a letter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. <that>. So <laughs> snail mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hasib basically said, uh, "Okay, so if you're so good at that job, why would you want to quit and you know move to Bombay, get out of the house and expensive city, all of that?" And I was like, "But motorcycles um, are over there." And in front of me, he made a phone call to Bijan and said, "Yeah, yeah, he's mad enough. You can hire him." And then he put the phone down and he said, "Look, we're not going to cut your salary from what you've got now. We're going to give you the same salary. But since you're moving to Bombay and moving into your own accommodation, it does mean that you're coming down in terms of how much money you make." And I was like, "That's all right with me." uh and iit was exceptionally generous in my quitting process they found me a place to stay in bombay as a uh, holdover until i could find my own place wow. which is amazing uh the courier guys who called me to transport my bikes actually did that on the behest of iit and i was uh, given the privilege of those rates as well and i will always be thankful wow. for how generous they were about yeah. me leaving the organization uh and then i of course came to bs motoring and i walked in and they was like motorcycles or cars you have to choose one so i said motorcycles is you'll never get to see a car again and i was like yeah i'm good with that <laughs> and the next thing that happens is bijoy says call these guys they'll give you a motorcycle go test it and i was like uh, how do you road test motorcycles i don't know that's your job mm. and <laughs> yeah it was amazing because i had to figure out how to road test motorcycles for bs motoring yeah. and it was amazing because i had to learn and develop my own skills what year was this This was the year 2000. Okay. Uh, I think this was be June is the June 1 or something would yeah. be the first day at motoring. And and what was the industry like back then? 
it was very funny because there weren't that many vehicles around mm-hmm. uh, and therefore you had time uh, mm-hmm. to ride them so you, you could take 5 days to ride for example the fiero was relatively new at that point yeah. of time so my dad know. had a aquamarine blue fiero yeah. i still maintain one of the smoothest engines still it was a brilliant engine yeah. absolutely yeah. amazing there were, were also brilliant tires on it because yeah. they wouldn't wear out yeah. at all no matter Love what you bike. did yeah. uh, we had the mold nubs still yeah. on it i think 8 10000 yeah. kilometers later was insane and back then i remember this mag- i don't know which magazine it was but there was a record set between bangalore and mysore mm. for the fastest time on a fiero and they were averaging that guy was averaging i think about 110 kilometers per hour or something like but it was amazing back then you know the fiero yeah. was a yeah really yeah so i came into the industry when i remember my colleagues were putting pictures of themselves in chappals and rolled up shirts <laughs> i didn't want to say it yeah yeah, yeah. i didn't want to say it no, but no, i'm no. so glad yeah, you yeah, said yeah, it, it, was, it was. you know this struck me when you talk about the denim jacket and the helmet and i wanted to say at that point by bit my tongue i was like i remember looking at a at a picture in a magazine cuz i used to make all these cutouts in a scrapbook of a guy riding i think it was a, a gsxr i'm not i'm not really sure which bike but it was a big bike and he was he was wearing chappals and i was like what the yeah, you're yeah. a journalist so at that point of time motorcycles weren't really taken as seriously as we take them now and uh, so i remember going out for my first shoot it was a rx135 and a samurai hmm some two stroke story it was and i came to work you know t-shirt and jeans and boots and i was like what do i wear and he was like you look fine So I found this Adidas uh, wind cheater so that it would look right. I went and did the shoot. Uh, fell off both the bikes on the same shoot. Uh, got hurt. And I think that year October I went to Japan for what remains one of the most amazing trips I've ever done abroad because each day was a different city in Japan. Each day was a different cuisine. And this was in in 2000 again. In 2000 October September October. and uh, i bought my first motorcycle jacket it was very funny it was a shop which said korin biker c o r i n and uh, i bought this jacket for about 15000 rupees on a credit card uh <laughs> korin biker was amazing because it yeah. said established 1989 and i bought this jacket in like no it said 1995 mm-hmm. you know how brands established yeah. 1995 <laughs> it said established 2001 and i'm like bang the jacket into the music that jacket saved me a lot of course but it took me years to pay off that 15000 rupees of my credit card because i just didn't have money to pay the credit card off and unfortunately business standard didn't have budgets at that point to mm. help me pay the jacket off and i refused to ride without it to the point where if you see the motoring pictures i think about 4 5 years later the jacket was pink it was pink from being washed <laughs> and put out in the sun to get cleaned up and then worn again on the bike and but from that day forward i have never ridden without a jacket ever again it's also that time when i hurt my knees consistently because i didn't have riding pants so all the damage in my knees today mm-hmm. i have various ligaments that are in sort of dicey shape all of them are from th- those 2 3 years of riding and i regret it today because i can't really run up a flight of stairs anymore uh-huh. i can do two flights three flights of stairs and then yeah. the pain will start here's a quick question for you so back then in uh, in those early years when you were traveling abroad what did people think of indian motoring or indian journey oh they didn't, they didn't think much of us uh, we were just the, like the new guys on the block we didn't really know much and honestly we didn't know that much mm. i mean our bikes were really small and at that point of time fairly rudimentary mm-hmm. our understanding of them was also at the same level they were exceptional characters like aspi mm-hmm. bathena who's like mm-hmm. a of course like the senior figure in our industry today he'd already done the isle of man by then and all of that so he might be at the same level as them and because he was racing and he's from pune where there were a lot of super bikes yeah. he obviously had exposure as well we didn't know anything mm. we were lucky at bs motoring that the gray market bikes kept coming into our magazine and we got our hands on a lot of machines but these were 2 hour shoots where you'd get to you know ride the motorcycle for 30 40 kilometers at maximum 
today i would go to a launch and when somebody says this is amazing i would disagree and i would disagree on the basis of the idea saying yes in your country this is great but in my country where the bumps are larger and the yeah. bumps are more uh, yeah. felt more often i don't know that i would live with a package this kind of <laughs> yeah. so today i yeah. have some amount of confidence Cloud, yeah. that when i have an opinion which is at a difference from everybody else sure. in the room i am okay yeah but back in the day we were just like oh wow international launch <laughs> and you know that was the excitement to be able it, to come it's back. amazing how fairly common that has become now in the industry right like yeah. it's just um anyways moving on from bs so how long were you in bs for um how did oh, that oh just 7 years man just 7 years <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah so when i was being interviewed for part of they asked me saying you know we don't want a short term commitment so sure. I was like I think I've got you covered I did 7 <laughs> or 8 years in my first place and now 11 years in the second yeah. place so I don't see myself as a person who ups and quits every 6 months and sure. finds a new thing to do but to me it's about the motorcycles as long as the motorcycles are there and I'm satisfied that I'm riding enough mm-hmm. I don't think the rest of it bothers me too much yeah not the salary not the designation really <laughs> I mean if somebody were to come to me today say look my job as today is power drift editor right yeah. content head or whatever but if somebody would come and say that look you just go out and ride motorcycles every day and we'll cut your salary by 50% <laughs> i would probably take it yeah your designation nice. will be intern oh yeah, yeah okay man <laughs> done i just go to be on the motorcycle all day that's awesome nice yeah all right guys at this point we'll take another break a lot of great content coming out of uh, shumi right here uh, so much more to talk about we're going to delve into the depths of his career and really get into some do- juicy details uh, and special memories that he's had so we will be back in just a sec problems are everywhere some adjust their lives coexisting with it while some who can't do much but complain then there are some who just run away from those problems and here comes a special kind of people the dreamers the believers the ones who are not fond of the rules they are the ones who saw their problems differently they saw the problems as opportunities to change themselves and the world they rose by lifting others join us to know their epic journey of how they changed the status quo on being the change with me rohan thakar only on epilog media network Ladies and gentlemen, we're back with Talk the Talk, a very special episode with the awesome Shumi. So far, it's been so great. We've talked about pretty much the beginning of his his, his journey into the into the world of motorcycles. We delved a little bit into his childhood, got an insight of of why it is the way. Why is it that he is the way he is, and and, and an insight into his mind. Um, we've started off at the beginning of his career, where he spent seven years in BS motoring. He was at the uh, at uh, the early days where it was still common to ride without riding gear a hmm. uh, very interesting time to be in the industry so 7 years in bs motoring what was sort of like the key highlights from that journey that what did you really take out of it what did that job really teach you i think the biggest thing that we did at bs motoring was we focused 100% on the enthusiast at a time when for example uh, magazines like autocar and uh, overdrive had started and all that they were very very 
halfway between the enthusiast and being buyer oriented mm-hmm. and motoring was about great writing uh, great photography sure. it was a thin magazine it wasn't as big as the rest of them but it was a cult and people who followed us really followed us they would sure. hang on every word we wrote I was also very lucky to have an amazing team of people that I started out with. So uh, I was the dream team, as it's now called, which I didn't realize that I was part of back then. But uh, Bijoy was the editor, and Bijoy is a super boss uh, because he's he's an enabler. He will let you do stuff and figure your stuff out. Bijoy would also say stuff like Shrini, who was the second in command, has a certain way of writing, and you don't have to become Shrini; you have to become yourself. Yeah, you know. And we had Param, who was an awesome photographer and a great writer. We had Murli Menon, Sachin uh, Rao. All of both of them were great writers, uh, especially travel more than testing. Yeah. It was a great team. It was a great place to learn. And I remember thinking on I think day four or five, uh, Shrini had just rejected one more of my stories, saying, "What nonsense is this?" <laughs> and uh, I realized that my talent was to be able to type faster than them. Okay? okay. The secret to this is I've had a computer at home since I was in class four. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things you did constantly was type. Yeah. Right. So when I joined motoring, I was already typing thirty to forty percent faster than my nearest mm. fastest colleague. So Shrini would say, "This is a nonsense story. There is no structure to it. You're jumping from the handlebar to the grab rail back mm. to the front wheel. You mm. cannot read like this. You need to restructure it. Mm-hmm. And it would be harder for me to rework the story than to rewrite the story. Mm. So I'd be back with Shrini in twenty minutes with completely new story. And Shrini is like. Hey, what the fuck have you done? Why have you written a new story now to read the whole thing again and understand the structure? And I was like, okay, man, just read it. So he read it, and he's like, yeah, it's a little bit better, but I think if you move this paragraph here and move that paragraph there, it would be better. I would just go and rewrite another version of the whole thing. And they were like, dude, this is not king. This is this, this is not how it's done. You cannot keep rewriting the whole story from the top. And I remember at that point in time, I was writing the same story ten times, twelve yeah. times, wow. which came down to seven, five, mm-hmm. four. Now I think I can pretty much hammer out a printable story in the first go, and sure. making it something memorable might take a little bit more work. Yeah. But I was typing so fast that I could just pull this stunt off, and eventually riding fast and typing fast. Yeah, so <laughs> I still do. I, I still type phenomenally fast, and yeah. I can type practically in any environment. But the point is. from there i learned or what became identifiable as my style of writing and i think b- motoring allowed me to discover the fact that motorcycles are not about the specification and they are not about what it means to the buyer in terms of value for money sure. motorcycles are 100% about emotion mm. and if you can tap the emotion people will identify with you mm. so i know that at motoring i was an identifiable writer in terms of my taste for motorcycles mm. so if i criticized a cruiser you wouldn't take it very seriously because i wasn't really a cruiser kind of rider mm-hmm. but if i appreciated a cruiser then you knew you were onto something special because i was a sports bike guy yeah you know and i still hold on to that very firmly i still believe a car road test has a lot of relevance for the buyer sure. but a motorcycle road test is almost irrelevant or should be almost irrelevant to the buyer the buyer has to go ride that thing and understand how it makes him feel mm. and if it feels good then it doesn't matter if it's value for money or not because value for money as i wrote in a column very recently value for money ends once you buy the motorcycle <laughs> but the emotion is until you own it mm. and if you get the right emotion you'll own it forever which i think is a far bigger deal than the fact that you say 500 rupees or 800 rupees or the inane discussion whether the dream neo is better than the splendor absolutely. is better than the victor or whatever yeah these are minor issues life is bigger than this absolutely you know this voice is i think what got a lot of us into magazines to begin with you know wait for every month to go to the news stand and pick up that fresh copy look at the pictures and i used to do that all the time and really spend time reading over the details and visualizing it do you think 
to some degree that that voice has sort of muted as time has gone by especially in the industry today or i think the biggest problem with the industry today is that we are thinking of google as our primary reader not our readers hmm. okay and a lot of websites a lot of magazines have given up the fight to stake honest to the reader and they've begun to tow google's line which is extremely unfortunate in both directions neither did google mean it for it things to be this way nor do you nor do i think the editors need to make these decisions that go this way but the fact of the matter is if you have a business head who's sitting behind you and say i want eyeballs yeah then you can't say balls to him you have to yeah. tow his line and unfortunately it means you write seo friendly copy rather than what you're really thinking Yeah. Or you write what you're really thinking in paragraph five, by which point the first three paragraphs of SEO friendly copy have already lost you. Yeah. So has the voice dissipated? It has. Uh, has the reader also dissipated? He has too, or she has too, because uh, I don't think our attention spans are as big as they used to be. Uh, I mean, look at your Facebook feed today; it's full of yeah. videos. Yeah. And how many of those videos are you watching to the end? Almost yeah. none. Absolutely. Okay, that's your attention span. Yeah. So as as it. I think the trend is it happens in the United States, then it sort of comes here. The US has rediscovered long form content, exactly, and there's a that's, small that's exactly audience, but a say, very yeah. dedicated audience that yeah. goes back to long form yeah. content. And I'm sure we will find our long yeah. form content yeah. niche as well. Yeah. But I don't think there are many businesses that are thinking of niches. Yeah. We are doing what motorcycles did 20 years ago. We are thinking volumes. Absolutely. How do I get more and more and more people to come into my fold? Yeah. And we have to let that process get through before we discover that there is a niche for long-term content. There yeah. is a niche for features. There is a niche for people who write extremely emotional content. Yeah. And then we sort of sort out the industry. Yeah. One statistic I was reading recently, which of course we're now in the digital space. So I don't know if I should be saying this, but that statistic made me really happy. Was that global magazine sales picked up by about six percent last year, uh, especially specifically in the automotive space? And that made me really happy because there's something different about putting it to paper. Sure. Or uh, maybe it's just the romantic idea. Maybe today, but uh, it's different. And um, okay, so now back to your career. So <laughs> you were in BS for seven years, and yeah. that's where you essentially found your voice. Yeah. Um, in the world of automotive journalism, especially finding your voice is really critical because it's a very personal business in the sense that people come to you because they like what you have to say. How long did that process really take for you? I think finding your voice is a function of who you are as well as what environment you're in. I was mm. super lucky, okay, because at Motoring, uh, all the stars had their own spaces, right? Bijoy did his own thing. Shini was our vintage car guy. Murli was our travel guy. Sachin would do uh, travel on a two wheeler. Uh, Param was shooting, and Param would write the odd feature when something really caught his fancy. Like I think when we drove the first tracks, Gurkha, he was so happy with it. He wanted to write the feature, and he did. Mm. So he shot it and wrote it. But so I was left alone to do the motorcycles the way I saw fit. nice so i think that responsibility and therefore because it was mine it was taken that seriously as well so i got the opportunity to explore various ways of playing this game do mm -hmm. i want to be a hardcore tester saying seat is better seat is worse long wheel base is long or do i want to say specification this bike is shit but when you ride it man something happens inside yeah. and i slowly gravitated towards that because people writing back to us would always write back about the articles that talked about the emotion of motorcycling mm. rather than the mechanics of motorcycling mm. okay mechanics is important you need to be able to tell people if you foresee a problem yeah. but to me it's emotional motorcycles that make people sing and i found that at bs motoring and i was allowed to play with it Nice. And I got to play with it not only for what was launched. I was allowed to play with it for grey market motorcycles. Mm. Uh, I was allowed to be completely off the reservation. So I remember I rode this thing called the Yamaha Thunder Ace. Mm -hmm. It's the motorcycle that preceded the R1, and obviously okay. the R1 is a legend. Yeah. 
but it was my first big bike and i was like wow greatest <laughs> motorcycle ever that article was off the charts in terms of how much emotion was in that yeah. it was all wrong it was a shit motorcycle <laughs> but i only know that now after having ridden like so many more motorcycles yeah. so the thunder race had a cousin called the thunder cat which was a 600 <laughs> which was a far superior motorcycle i love the names yeah of, so the thunder cat was a then, far yeah. superior yeah. 600 versus the thunder race as a liter class motorcycle yeah. but when you ride your first liter class motorcycle dude you think you're like the king of the world for that those yeah. five minutes and even the guy who gave me the motorcycle to ride a guy called prashant even prashant who never says anything looked at the article and he had this smile saying oh these kids <laughs> and it it took me five eight ten motorcycles before i realized how far how wrong i was and if there are people out there who bought thunder races because i wrote that article i'm so sorry i did that to you <laughs> i just didn't know any better but that was the amazing thing about motoring mm. i was allowed to develop and go wrong and yeah. be able to learn from it and become more and more accurate about what i say yeah. and what i do yeah, and that's also back to I guess you could also make a link back to your to your childhood where you were allowed to make those mistakes, but that's what that's essentially how you grow. Yeah, and it so, was not like Bijoy came to me and said, "Thunder Race, great motorcycle. What the hell is wrong with you?" Yeah, you know, it was like, "Okay, you think it was great? Okay, I, I trust you. I trust <laughs> your judgment and let that go into print." And I know that a few times where I've written something that was unparliamentary, and I know that Bijoy would have had to take the flag from the manufacturer for sure. it, but we were shielded completely from that. Nice. So in that sense, it was a fantastic place to learn the art of being a motorcycle journalist. Mm -hmm. It was a fantastic place to grow as a person. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember coming in from Delhi, and I was ragged for the first few months because I would say something that was very typically Delhi, okay? Yeah. And they would all say, hey, Delhi, but Delhi has come out, Delhi has come out. And I had to tone that down and become Bombay. I mean, the way I portray it is Delhi sometimes feels like everybody thinks they are somebody and everybody else is nobody. Uh, Bombay is more like, I'm also somebody, you're also somebody, we're just here to get some work done, so let's yeah. help each other out. It's a very unparliamentary thing to it's say. It's a very unparliamentary I mean, thing to say, but it does feel no, like it sometimes, right? Yeah. And sometimes when I go back to Delhi, I still feel like, I don't know how I lived in the city for 12, <laughs> whatever, uh, in 19, 20 years. Yeah. Because sometimes it feels like people are in your way just for the heck of it. Yeah. You know, in Bombay, if they're in your way, you would usually get an apology or a thing saying, look, I really can't help the fact that I'm in your way. Mm -hmm. Delhi is still not like that. There mm -hmm. are, of course, it's 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 a huge generalization and I I swear not everybody in Delhi is like that. But it it is such a huge change of attitude. And it took me, I think, three years before they stopped ragging me about being a Delhi boy. Today, I know people who come from Delhi meet me who do not believe that I was in school in Delhi and I was in college <laughs> in Delhi because I have none of those qualities left. Either, yeah. And I, I firmly believe the ragging at motoring was 100% responsible for mm. taking that out of me. Okay. Yeah. So I do I have a big ego? I think I do. Mm -hmm. But do I throw it in people's faces? Not if I think it's not required. Sure. You know, if it's required and it gets your work done faster, sure. Yeah. Like I know I will yell at people during my shoot if they're getting in my way. Yeah. <laughs> and I will bring everything to bear, right? I'm senior journalist and all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'll just the, get my shot done cloud. and I'm out yeah. of your way, right? Absolutely. But uh, I think typically I'm not that person anymore. When mm -hmm. I came from Delhi, it was a very, very different mm -hmm. feeling person that came. But uh, all of that credit goes to that environment at uh, Motoring. And I think uh, in time as people left, that environment changed and the team changed and that obviously changes the dynamic quite a bit but by then i was the senior most motorcycle guy so i was still allowed to do whatever i wanted to do and th i think that is an opportunity i wish every young journalist today gets yeah. to be able to be 
have the responsibility and have the space to grow simultaneously and i think the way the industry is today it's very difficult for editors to give them give people that much space Absolutely. just don't have the breathing space to do it yeah it's very it's very tough today it's not yeah. that simple because it's also a churn right yeah. how quickly can you get content out yeah. there if, uh, we had we had what we had to churn out five stories a month there are kids here turning out 14 18 stories a day absolutely where are you yeah. going to think and grow exactly you know? it's, it's exactly. very difficult um so from bs um what was happening in your personal life at the time because you know this is a very tough uh, industry on relationships yeah uh, i've been married for the last 2 years and and traveling does take a strain it's great yeah. but um, it's important to nurture those personal relationships yeah. so what was going on in your life so uh, i'm not very good at relations anyway uh, i have very few friends but these are friends who would die for me yeah. but i don't really have a large friend circle but uh, bs motoring was also good because i met my wife there uh, she joined as a journalist working for the weekend section and she would literally sit across the partition from me mm. uh, and we basically uh, met there decided to get married there we were told if you got married one of the two of you would have to quit uh and it's a policy <laughs> i was said to be an chap policy we invited the super boss and the super boss said look i'm really sorry i can't uh, join come for the wedding because i'm not in town that day but it'll be amazing to have a married couple in the office and i was like there is no rule <laughs> like this they lied to us so anyway so we worked together for a uh, i think almost a year before she moved on to times of india nice but I think Arti was one of the nicest things that have ever happened to me. Uh she was super accommodating about the fact that we had to travel this much. Mm-hmm. As long as I made sure that when I was in town I gave her as much time as I could mm-hmm. and we played that balance I think really well. And and you know this was the days before WhatsApp where you could constantly keep in touch. So yeah, it was would, difficult. And and I'm sure when you yeah. were going on your rides or your drives you were gone for days. Yeah. Uh so what was the communication like back then or you just didn't bother? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't remember but I remember that I had a Nokia 5110 very very soon after I uh, started in the business. It was some colleague's phone and they were moving on to a new No, I had a big giant Siemens thing. Okay. And after the Siemens I got my 5110 but I had a cell phone pretty pretty early, early it was game. still expensive and the primary like job rupees a minute back yeah, then. Yeah. <laughs> but and the primary job was to call yeah. uh, Arti and let her know that you know sure. i'm okay or everything is okay did you ever have a pager i uh, know i never had yeah, a pager yeah. no no yeah. no uh, so i went straight for that giant siemens thing it was so big that if i had to carry it today it would really annoy me because i'm like <laughs> very very careful with my edc it's a very yeah. uh, tightly packed edc kit but that siemens would not fit it's as large <laughs> as my edc kit but uh, yeah uh, we stayed in touch as much as we could she was super understanding about it and it's not like she didn't travel a lot for her part of her she was doing features so she okay. would have to go out and meet Feature people journalist. as well yeah, yeah but we spent we took no work home we nice. ensured that if we were home at 7 there was no work to be done after 7 o'clock it was just us together so we managed uh, we did a pretty good job of that yeah and of course uh, she got diagnosed with her kidney disease what 6 months after we got married and kidney disease is a super annoying disease to have yeah. uh, especially because you can't fix it and and what year did you guys get married so 2003 we got married about 6 months later yeah. she was diagnosed and once you have kidney disease then it changes the dynamic quite a bit because there's so much happening with the medical side of that that yeah. uh, you're traveling and all that is inconsequential it's the rest of the stuff that you have to do that and at this time um so i i guess in 2000 you were still at bs at this time mm. or did you leave yeah no i was still at bs yeah so it was 3 years probably into your career mm. at bs mm. so what was the next uh, so um next 4 years um when you decided to leave bs where did you go to next what was going so, on so um i was getting to the point where i 
one of the advantages of bs being a small uh, motoring being a very small magazine was that i got to work in every part of the magazine mm-hmm. so i've helped the designers out i've done the production process i did proofing for the longest time uh, i used to write i've shot for the magazine if i needed to mm-hmm. so it was a 360 degree experience as sure. you like guys like to call it now but i was coming to the point where i was doing the same thing over and over and mm. over again and it felt like i could do it in my sleep and i wasn't really learning a lot mm. and to me that is not a satisfying place to be in and it turns out full happen chance but the overdrive guys approached me almost as i was going through the motions of i don't know that i want to you know be here and do this one more month and two more months and three more months and it was a great opportunity because it was still in bombay so i didn't have to move houses yeah. as it were because we had a nice place in uh, yeah we had we moved into a house in pawai already and uh, basically they said televisions just come on board so you would get to do videos mm. so there was something new to learn uh, i would obviously handle two wheeler content which yeah. i was already doing but over there was a bigger magazine more yeah. exposure more history and all of that kind yeah. of thing so and of course there was a huge jump in salary which obviously makes things much easier to do so it was like almost a no brainer and uh, quitting was not an easy process bs bs motoring was a very emotional place yeah and, and with a small team it's never easy and yeah. it, therefore there was a lot of emotion to be dealt with and there was a lot of how can you leave us and go mm. and i was like i have to leave you and go because i'm not learning anything here anymore mm. and it was not a salary thing it was not a designation sure. thing it was simply the fact that i need to come to work excited about what i'm going to do Absolutely. now right yeah. i'm the guy i'm a morning person to the huge annoyance uh, annoyance for arti for years i would sort of <laughs> leap out of bed vertical get like ready to go like a little dynamo and she would be like i cannot deal with you like this <laughs> but i was coming to a point where motoring it was difficult for me to do that yeah and that's the point when overdrive happened and it sort of flip the switch again yeah and then i was like yeah full charge charge back again yeah, so you joined learning tv was a huge thing so you joined over overdrive as again as a motorcycle guy purely mm-hmm. um, so what was it like then and and these were again sort of like the early days of overdrive so guys w- one really cool thing about overdrive is it's an indian bred publication which is a very very tough it was i can imagine a very hard thing to do back in the day it still is hard to do today because your brand name is everything especially in in the global scenario if you want to get access to the more premium vehicles premium drives so one of the things that overdrive really did especially if i i remember as a kid as well the magazine it was it was it felt like i for the longest time honestly thought it was a global publication hmm. uh, and and it that just is just a testament to the quality of content they were delivering yeah. so what was life like at odi so uh, overdrive was an interesting change for one big reason bs motoring was always a small magazine in a large newspaper and that's the amount of focus and attention it would get mm-hmm. and i think if they had focused on bs motoring at the right time it would be one of the biggest magazines there is today because the content was so good mm-hmm. but Overdrive was the exact opposite. The mm. content was good. It was a big fat magazine and a lot of space was yeah. there. Uh but it was the primary magazine in a publishing business. So mm. they had all the focus, all the attention and all the resources. It was huge. Uh so I came into a situation where there was almost no restrictions. You could think of a crazy idea and then figure out how to execute it and go ahead and do nice. it and there would be no resource crunch thrown in your way. There would be no uh, oh you don't have enough people to do it and that kind of thing. So it was an amazing place for the for the initial part. We were No I think we were called Infomedia 18 no you we just called Infomedia at that point of mm-hmm. time uh and I, it was beautiful because mm-hmm. all the magazines that other magazines that Infomedia does were smaller than us so we were like the I mean we were the demigods in Kremlin, the like Kremlin, building yeah. yeah and and Overdrive was set up by Adil if I'm not mistaken yeah yeah again another oh. legend in the industry yeah, yeah. so Overdrive yeah. was set up by Adil Overdrive sometimes is joked uh, they they joke that it is the school of journalism because <laughs> almost every editor you see in the business today yeah uh has been at Overdrive at some point yeah uh 
people like yogendra berti sirish yeah. they actually have been editors of overdrive before they became editors of other things other things yeah, in fact berti's taken over the, as the editor of overdrive now yeah yeah so, so it was called the school of journalism because you learned so much from overdrive then that you went out and practiced that skill somewhere else mm-hmm. but because it was home grown mm-hmm. uh, you had to learn everything on your own i mean if if you were a british magazine franchised out the british would also give you templates to work on absolutely or to work with yeah. and sometimes uh, to your detriment because i don't know that i want to write british style english for an indian audience mm. but the fact of the matter is you got a starting point mm. but when adil came in created overdrive he had to do it from scratch exactly. and then when we took the baton and started running from there we had to figure out how fast to run ourselves as well yeah so that was, that was actually going to be my next question with with overdrive what was the driving philosophy behind the content what was the main ideology behind the content i think for the initial few years it was just enthusiasts oriented people doing nutty stories i remember berti and sirish went out and one guy organized an amg the other guy organized an m and they showed up at the nobogring and they met together and what a fantastic story oh, that turned dude, out to yeah. be so that was the day when all of this was easy and possible yeah. you know there was no restrictions and uh, at that point of time we used to get a, a 38 of Fifty dollar allowance per day that we were traveling, and a lot of us would keep the allowance rather than spend it. Not because you'd come home, convert into cash, and build a bank balance, but because you spend it on stories like this. Yeah. Oh wow. So you'd okay. go back to the Nobogring, and they'd say, "Okay, the four day story." So you get four into whatever thirty eight dollars, whatever the amount is. But you'd have three hundred dollars left over from some previous travel that you haven't yeah. consumed it, and you'd use that. Blow the money there. Yeah. So That's you would incredible. have the resources yeah. to execute stories like that, yeah. and as time has. gone over as google has become more important the web has become more dominant yeah. the ability to do stories on that scale has become more challenging it requires more planning it requires Absolutely. more more people to be convinced and of course with today's molly coddled world the liability as well <laughs> the liability yeah. as well so um, but that, that was a good time at overdrive so with overdrive uh, did you have you been to the nobogring i went uh, i think castrol invited us Okay. Uh, as part of a bigger group to go to the Nobogring, yeah, and uh, it was a fun day. Although we didn't really drive the Nordschleifer that much, okay. uh, I remember. But you driven on the Nordschleifer in a nice. convoy okay. in a BMW. Still fair enough. Yeah, uh, SUV. Yeah. Uh, it was mind blowing because uh, we came out uh, right next to the GP circuit. That's mm-hmm. where we started our lap nice. from. It was raining. It was wet and super slippery. So slippery that at some 60 kmh in a convoy, traction control lights were flashing away. It was nonsense. <laughs> The temperature outside must have been five, six degrees. Oh, crazy! And then you come to some pl- place later, and it's not raining anymore. It's sleet, and then there was hailstones. Then as we went over the village of Noberg, <laughs> it was snow. Then we came over the crest, and it was sunlight. <laughs> and it's the same lap, and it was just I have I, we have it on video. I think Ausef from Autocar at that mm. point was my co-driver, if I'm not mm. mistaken. And we were both a little mind blown by the fact that it was like you could see weather changing, and <laughs> it, was, it was insane, insane lap. What was your um, So with Overdrive, what did you sort of lead there? So you were doing TV, you were working in the magazine as well, or yeah. So Overdrive was a multidisciplinary place. Mm-hmm. Everybody did everything, and uh, I and did. How big was the team at that point in time? Oh, I don't remember, but maybe nine people, eight, okay. ten people. It was a big team uh, yeah. for the time, and uh, we were doing television, we were doing print. We had just started to sort of venture into the web, but it was not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. That would happen later, but uh, television also was a. because it was a news show on a tv channel yeah. it was a fairly formatted content yeah. we do a feature now and then so it was a go out shoot so many shots do this do this do this and then your job is done mm-hmm. come back do vios and it was mm-hmm. easy but you got to learn how to talk to the camera i remember my most embarrassing shoot was my first one we went for the launch of the fz <laughs> and i said this is the yamaha fz and everything else that i said was so fast that they couldn't use it So I opened the video and then my producer's voiceover carries the whole video and I was like what the hell happened here? He's like you speak so fast. 
we couldn't use any of the content so yeah. i had to learn how to speak slower for mm. the television camera now i used to it but there are times <laughs> when i get carried away too. so Still. with your experience in 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 of course traditional magazine driven uh, automotive journalism how how uh, i wouldn't say difficult but um what was the shift like to get into video because videos are definitely different is a different space altogether and especially in the world of news where you have to have a 30 minute segment or whatever your segment was ready by the weekend so what was that like for you did you feel some kind of conflict to put your thoughts into words and or was it difficult to get that emotion across i think if i was a if i didn't have all the 7 8 years of working at bs motoring it would have been a bigger challenge sure. but i think by then you i had already figured out that i would work really fast yeah so between me getting off a motorcycle collecting my thoughts and putting it down into paper there's not a lot of time so it was fairly easy for me personally to get in front of a camera and say something and then be sure that i said the right thing and i didn't have to reconsider yeah obviously the calibration of how accurate you were we could argue i could have probably been more accurate or i was not as accurate as i thought i was but i was in the ballpark almost mm-hmm. from the start so to me that wasn't a challenge and uh, i think i'm not afraid of work mm-hmm. So if it's an 18-hour day, you do an 18-hour day. Yeah, I have college to thank for it. We have <laughs> done uh, the transportation semester, which was the third semester. It was crazy. <laughs> I was underweight to start with. I lost 11 kilos that semester. Wow. We averaged, I think, two hours of sleep over the course of the whole semester, and our teacher was so good that you couldn't slack off because if you slacked nice. off for like five minutes, he'd know. So that taught you the capacity for work, and sure. we all have humongous capacity for work if you put our minds to it. Sure. We just That's never so explored yeah. that. and yeah. luckily for me i did so that all didn't scare me so much yeah. uh but yeah it was more work than the average magazine guy because we were going to have to shoot and then help with the production of that and you were writing the magazine story and shooting for that and it does get complicated yeah. but it's not impossible so how how many years were you at od for <laughs> 11 11 and you eventually worked your way up to editor uh, i didn't really work my way up to editor i just worked my way up to more and more motorcycles okay. and i think I, they came to a point where i don't think they really had a choice one day <laughs> and uh, they made me editor and i think there was reluctance on both sides i don't think the editor position is a great position because it takes you away from motorcycles and puts you in administration sure so i was the reluctant editor <laughs> uh, and i think on the other side i think they were reluctant to hire me as the editor too because i'm not like the easiest person to think of as a man manager mm-hmm. which is what the editor's job is mm-hmm. but uh, yeah even today i don't think i would have wanted to be the editor of anything uh, i would just rather be like the intern who gets to ride all the bikes <laughs> but uh, yeah you learn you you learn along the way and and and, ha- and during this time i think there was a radical shift in in the industry itself there was a lot that was changing so what were your thoughts on that what were you seeing that was happening i think the, my heartbreak for this industry only comes from the fact that we seem to increasingly report to google rather than our readers mm. and that we have lost the idea that we are talking to a reader who is going to invest serious sums of money based on what you're saying yeah we are just going after the eyeballs and saying what does google want today and if google wants you to have a tata story then you'll write a tata story even if what you think personally is the more important story today is a tvs story but tvs is not trending today so we yeah. just hold on to it for tomorrow i think that's a bad place to be mm-hmm. uh, somebody needs to stand up and say that this is not how it's done and in that sense i think power drift is very very quality conscious of what they are doing and it makes me happy it, it does mean that a lot of our videos are severely delayed hmm bikes have been out for months and our mm-hmm. stories are not out yes but to me <laughs> yeah. 
I am happier with that situation knowing yeah. that we are focusing on quality control rather than what's trending. Yeah. Uh, because it's easy to get carried away in the trending process and water down all your values yeah. to get it done. Um, and I know that a lot of websites that do well today are just about their SEO. They don't really care. They don't give two shits about what content is going out on the Absolutely. website. As long as the and SEO part is taken care of. And not just with, with auto journalism, but I think this is true across the board with, with pretty much any form of, of, of media today. Um, so with that, let's quickly take another break before we jump into Shumi's journey into Power Drift and what lies ahead with him. So stay tuned to Talk the Talk. This is Glenn. We're talking with Shumi. We will be back in just a sec. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed listening to part one of this podcast. But coming up is part two. Please make sure you have subscribed to this particular channel and we will be back very, very soon.